So ladies and gentlemen, vapes are going to be banned here in the UK, which begs the question, why don't we just legalise weed? In the words public enemies Chuck D, in the noise. On the Fifth End Podcast Network, I'm Charlie Taylor, and this is What's Good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope it all is well. Hope it's blessed. Hope you have a good week in the circumstances. There you go. I'll just uh, go my head and say both. Um, yeah, this, this is legalized weed. Um, <laughs> there's always something, something like tangentially related to weed, um, whether whether it be you know smoking. Um, smoking vapes right um or obviously you know tobacco like you know like it was back in the day and people still do obviously but that's getting more expensive and that will obviously be banned at some point right um and then it got to vapes and now it's like you know different there's flavors oh my gosh but then there's the environmental aspect of people just binning them anywhere and everywhere and the fact that they're not that healthy either uh, excuse me. Um, so yeah, you know, there's that, and then obviously the quote unquote legal highs, right? They're not legal anymore. Just, just, just do weed, guys. Just do weed. Let's just, let's just do weed, okay? Let's just cut the middleman. Let's get to the end point and just legalize weed, because that's what it's all kind of come down to. Everyone want, well, not everyone. People who are interested in, sm- who need to feel like they need to smoke something. Smoke some weed. Just smoke weed. Just smoke weed. Legalize weed. Let's just get to the point. Let's just get to that. Like, vapes existed for what? Like, how long have they existed for now in the past few years? Past few years? And now they're already banned in the UK. Already going to get banned. It's just it's just silly. Let's just legalize weed. Let's just get to the point anyway. Alright, let's get to where we get to. Because that's just going to annoy me. Um, and speaking of annoyance, I'm going to get annoyed this episode at some point. Guaranteed rant come incoming. Uh, but before that, three society subjects, one environment subject. Let's jump right in. Formalities before we begin. Email, socials, writing, all that in full show notes, as well as music and podcasts under the 5 VPN, all in the full description. And with that said, let the beat drop. And let's get to the show. In a week where Alabama, state of Alabama, executes uh, Kenneth Smith using an untested method of nitrogen gas. Um, apparently he was struggling for like 22 minutes and that's just, yeah, that's just, wow. Death penalties, eh? Um, ICJ, um, International Court of Justice, orders Israel to take measures to prevent and punish direct incitement of genocide. But here's the kicker. Don't order a ceasefire. So, so keep killing, but don't keep killing or stop genociding, I guess. But keep killing because he's, because there's no ceasefire. I don't get the language there. That doesn't make sense to me. Um, anyway, Argentina's strike over new president, Javier Millet's new legislation. Kel Surprise. Good luck with that, guys. Uh, V&A. Uh, I think it's called the Victorian Albert. And uh, the British Museum is going to loan, loan Asante Gold to Ghana. So they're going to loan it back. Wow. How how nice of them to to loan it back. It's, oh, that's, that's really, really generous of them to loan it back and not give it back. Loan it back. Funny. I saw a post on the Telegraph of some dickhead. Um... Basically, just like decrying, oh no, this is a bad thing. (laughs) It's just like, yeah, our museums are now at risk of being looted. Just funny, just hilarious. People get paid to do this. And the subtitle is In a baffling turn of events, progressives are now demanding that objects be quote unquote returned to former slaving nations. Yes, because 
that's such a bad thing of course yeah we're, we're just we're losing so much uh, uh, we're losing, uh no we have to give back artifacts that we stole uh, uh we're so woke and uh, lastly the federal trial for the murder of jam master jay begins look forward to hopefully seeing that story finally come to a close after all these years so let's begin with millennials um I'm a millennial, technically, born in 96, which is kind of like on the cusp of millennial and Gen Z, but, you know, this is basically, mille- I'll, I'll class myself as a millennial that is aware of Gen Z and, you know, obviously in some ways can relate, but in some ways cannot. Um, but, yeah, consider myself a millennial, right? So you've guys heard the lazy millennials trope before, you've heard of all that, but mm, it's kind of weird, kind of, it's kind of weird because um, I feel like, you know, according to this article here that I've got by Helen Coffey via The Independent, how millennials became the hardest working generation. So apparently we are the hardest working, who freaking knew? Can't believe it. Well, well turn of events, so let's see what's being said here. Let's see the argument being made. Are, are millennials the hardest working generation? Who knows? Let's find out. Generation Z can be... I keep saying Z like, like an American's like Z. It's Z, but I don't know. Gen Z just sounds... Just rolls off the tongue more. Um, Gen Z can be really annoying to work with. That's according to Jodie Foster. They make up their own work hours. Quote, no, I'm not feeling it today. I'm going to come in at 10.30am, unquote. And think using correct spelling and grammar in emails is limiting. She told the Guardian interview. Riffing on on the theme, the Times ran a piece exploring the question of whether people born between the late 1990s and early 2010s are by nature self-righteous slackers in the workplace. The following anecdote is told during the article, quote, One friend, a 33-year-old communications manager, tells me of her surprise that all four of her under-25 excuse me, under 25, uh, she manages, have never considered logging into work emails on their phone, <laughs> instead chowing down over a salad over their keyboards at lunchtime, they take a full one hour break, at the end of each day they clock off at 6pm sharp, unquote. But the topic has sparked conversation over whether in reality it's millennials, those born between the early 80s and mid 90s, who've got it all wrong. After all, why shouldn't employees finish work when they're contacted too? Why shouldn't they leave answering emails to office hours? Why should they constantly go above and beyond when it's rarely rewarded or even acknowledged? Uh, Twitter slash X user at type for victory perhaps put it most succinctly. Quote, 55-year-olds, two-hour boozy lunches, no emails, pub by 6pm. 35-year-olds, lunch at desk, emails and calls, 24-7, work late. 25-year-olds, hour for lunch, emails during work hours, go home by 6pm. Millennials, I think we've screwed up here, or somewhere, unquote. This is not just anecdotal, there is data to support the notion. In a continual mass study of young people in the US called uh, Monitoring the Future, well that's nice, sounds nice, doesn't it? Uh, Monitoring the Future, which has surveyed uh, 50,000 8th, 10th and 12th graders, equivalent to year 9, 11 and 6 formers in the UK, every year since 1975, they asked how willing 18-year-olds would be to work overtime. Collect, collating and analysing the data from various cohorts, Gene Twenge, is that how you say it? Twenge? Uh, Gene Twenge, uh, author of Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers and Silence, and What They Mean for the Future, found that the percentage of young people willing to work beyond uh, their contracted hours was steadily going down until around 2009-2010, uh, when there was a significant uptick. Conversely, the percentage has plummeted in recent years. Between 2020 and 22, it dropped from 54% to 36 these trends were mirrored in other questions too, such as whether work was a central part of their lives and whether they would want to work if they didn't need to financially. Quote, there is some truth to the idea that when they were young at least, millennials were more work-oriented and compare, compared to those who came before and after, Twingy tells me. It struck a chord with this 36-year-old. Growing up, uh, my perception of journalism was a profession largely shaped by Bill Bryson's book, Notes from a Small Island, in which he reminisces about working in a 1980s British newsroom. Colleagues would swan in, file a single story, and head to the pub at lunchtime, never to return, and all of this on a healthy salary. 
the likes of which I could only dream of. That would do nicely, I thought. When it came to my own entry into the workforce, things were starkly different. Having been part of a generation who were told that if we worked hard enough we could achieve anything we set our minds to, I graduated in 2008, the year of the banking crash. Trying to get your foot in the first rung of the career ladder is challenging at the best of times. In the middle of a global recession, it is nigh on impossible. A fresh-faced, keen-as-mustard 21-year-old, uh, proudly clutching her first-class degree from a top-tier university, I couldn't get a job for love, uh, for love nor literally money. Every basic entry-level admin role I went for already had more than a thousand applicants. Gaining a first interview was a Herculean task, and the pressure was such that the week before it would be spent in sleepless nights and anxious prep-filled days, all to no avail. I both signed off for job seekers allowance and slipped into a deep depression for the first time in my life. Why am I giving you my oh, oh woe is me Dickensian backstory? Because I've always had this theory that the job market you come of age into has a profound impact on your work ethic and attitude to employment for the rest of your career. My cohort and I had to claw our way into professional into our professional lives. We still live in obsequious gratitude that we've been hired and perpetual fear that we'll be fired even 15 years later. We are forever running ourselves ragged trying to prove that we're indispensable. Our poster child is Andy Sachs, Miranda Priestley's chronically overworked assistant in the Naughties film The Devil Wears Prada. So did, the, uh, so did the economic landscape in which we entered the job market really shape our work ethic back then? I think it did, says Twenge. Uh, whether that persisted is more of an open question, but the Great Recession definitely had an impact on these attitudes. Gra uh, graduating into higher unemployment, millennials realised they might have to work harder to get ahead, unquote. Between 08 and 09, UK unemployment skyrocketed by the steepest jump in any 12-month period in the last 30 years, leaping from 562 to 7.54%, an almost 2% increase, according to World Bank data. The rate rose for the following two years, reaching a high of just over 8% in 2011. Gen Z, by contrast, did not graduate into this landscape. By 2018, the unemployment rate had dropped to 4%. By 2022, it was down to 3.57%, the lowest it's been in the past 30 years. In such a market, why wouldn't you demand employers value your worth and respect your boundaries? It's borne out by the data. Whopping 67% of Gen Z agree, quote, employees should only do the work they are paid for, no more, no less, compared uh, unquote, compared to 51% of millennials and Generation X, according to YouGov data. Another quote, Gen Z has benefited from strong job market and labour shortages, so they've been able to ask for better work-life balance, agrees Twenge. Um, it has to do with the psychology of that generation as well. They're not afraid to speak up about things that are important to them, unquote. While baby boomers, those born between 46 and 64, famously have a strong work ethic. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Shout out to my mum as well. Um, only 35% of them agreed that employers should work to rule, um, while more than half thought employees should quote-unquote always go above and beyond. The society in which they were employed was very different. Different, For one, without emails or smartphones, uh, for most of their working lives, there was no blurring of lines between the professional and domestic spheres. They clocked in, put, in sh put a shift in, and clocked out. When my parents were my age, there was no way that work would contact them outside of work hours except by phone. Home phone at that, says Caitlin Fisher, author of the author of the book, The Gaslighting of the Millennial Generation, How to Succeed in a Society that Blames You for Everything Gone Wrong. I don't think ever I don't ever remember my parents having to stop making dinner or spending time with the family to take a work call or respond to a boss, but these days it's extremely common for us to check email in the evening, get a Slack message and fire off a quick response and keep thinking about work long after it's time to call it quits for the day, unquote. However, as Twangy points out, there are trade offs to tech permeating our lives. The disadvantage is people bothering you at 8pm, but the advantage is you can work from home. Like lots of technology, it's not all good or all bad. It's about negotiating those boundaries. There's also the fact that if you worked hard, even with a low pay profession, it was possible for baby boomers to achieve some level of job security. Given the housing market, insecurities and pension, a triple threat of achievement that millennials have not managed to match. According to a 2023 report compiled by economists at the Resolution Foundation, the long-term effects of the financial crisis have left British millennials struggling to catch up with the living standards of older generations. The Intergenerational Audit for UK uh, report blamed this partly on a stagnant UK economy, 
and partly on policy decisions that benefited older people. UK wages have dropped too. Millennials earned on average 8% less at the age of 30 than their Gen X counterparts at the same age. The study authors compared the UK with the US and found that the former has been much slower to close the gap. Quote, young people across advanced economies were hit by the financial crisis, putting a stop to decades of progress, says the report's co-author Sophie Hale. Fifteen years on, the crisis uh, cohort is no longer young. Uh, In the UK, British millennials still bear economic scars as they approach middle age. Blaming other generations will get us nowhere, though, says Twangy. There are big cultural shifts. All generations are part of that. The idea that it, that is one generation's fault doesn't move things forward. That goes both ways. It's counterproductive to blame millennials for what they're buying or not buying, marrying later and having children later. That's part of a bigger, bigger cultural trend. And it's also counterproductive for millennials to say it's boomers' fault. And that's why everything's terrible. <laughs> I could make a case. Um, the idea that baby boomers rigged the economy, eh, uh, that they're all rich and climbed up the ladder and pulled out behind them, is inaccurate. Eh, don't know, but I get what you mean. Um, on a personal level, putting in our own bound, uh, boundaries and taking leaf out of Gen Z's book uh, could be a good place to start. We should absolutely be more like them, agrees Fisher. Leaving work at work means having a solid quitting time at the end of the workday and accountability for that limit. If you tend to check email uh, after hours, take your work email off your phone. If it's that important, you can log back in each morning. If you work a little extra because you work from home and don't have a clear start and end time, add a ritual to your day that signifies your commute, a time to transition from work mode to life mode. So instead of bemoaning Gen Z's lack of work ethic, perhaps we should be praising them and trying to emulate their more balanced approach. As Fisher put it, ignore the boss's after hours, after hours WhatsApp message and continue your evening, please. <sighs> I mean, from where I'm at at the moment, where I do, I work at schools now and again, a few times a week. Um, that's a new thing for me. Having that is really just a, it's nice for me. I like it. I, I, I enjoy where I'm at on that front. Um, you know, the, the pay is fine. It's not <laughs> it's better than what I usually had, uh, you know, this time last year. Um, so it's improved on that front. But yeah, it's, it's, it is what it is. And I get paid on a daily rate. And, you know, it's not it's not consistent. Some days I, you know, I don't get a call. And that's unfortunate, right? Um, wake up in the morning, don't get a call up. And it's, you know, it's it's sad but then again i have the whole day to myself and i can you know record a podcast for example right and just get out of the way i'm recording this on a monday um and you know that's good that's good i can get ahead and just get it done and get it sorted so you know i like this balance i have in the moment of freedom and actually doing work um and it's you know i feel like it's noble work at that being in in teaching um i value that at least it's not something that I don't really care about, quote-unquote, you know what I mean? I don't, I don't, you know, I don't really care about, you know, leaving right on 3, 3 p.m. on the dot, because I literally do that, and then I'm out, you know what I mean? I'll just sign out, boom. I don't have to, you know, mark papers or anything like that. It's good. I, li- I like it, but it's, you know, and not to get too deep in the weeds, but um, the concept of supply teaching, which I'm doing, um, is a symptom of a rotting education system, but that's neither here nor there. You know, I work hard in the things I want to work hard at. Um, unfortunately, those things don't make me money these days. <laughs> they just don't. And that's and that's fine. It is what it is. Um, but I know a lot of people that, you know, bust their ass just to, just to get places, and I'm not too bothered. Um, I don't have... I have probably the least responsibility out of uh most people i'm probably in the lower percentile on that front in terms of having responsibility i don't have a child i don't have you know quote unquote bills to pay i pay rent and you know some bills around the house but you know it's nothing too strenuous um so yeah it's it's fine for me it's how i'm living but you know there's people that are busting their ass man really busting their ass and they don't get anywhere and that's unfortunate um so yeah I've, i appreciate this um little reframing of how millennials are as a generation i do agree with the albeit new concept to me that you know it's not anybody's fault quote unquote right it's not solely the boomers fault it's not solely gen x's fault it's not solely um, the millennials fault or gen z's fault it's a it's a collective thing obviously it's how society works 
But, you know, if we if we if we're slicing off a piece of the pie, then I think the baby boomers have a bit more of the pie more than millennials. Okay, I'm just one of the shut out, so you know <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so it's an interesting concept and um yeah man, shout out to millennials man. Keep keep doing you man and um hopefully at some point or just uh I mean everyone else ahead of us is gonna die at some point, so you know it's it's gonna get better at some point. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay, let's hop into environment to break things up a little bit. This is um, coming to, we're going to Kenya for this one. Um, two weeks in a row, just realised, gone to Kenya. Um, this one's for a much more positive one than the uh, last week's one, definitely. Um, this one's via The Guardian, uh, written by Peter Muriri. So it's like Muir, but with a Ruri at the end, Muriri. Class and name. Um, it's called Our Contribution to a Cleaner World. How Kenya found an extraordinary power source beneath its feet. So let's see what the power is beneath their feet. And how will the West fuck it up somehow? Because <laughs> they're clearly going to stick their neck in because they always do. Um, but anyway, let's continue. The Kenya stretch of the Great Rift Valley is breathtaking. Vast plains between the two escarpments. New word, an escarpments team with wildlife, creating one of the world's largest animal migrations, the Mara Serengeti wildebeest migration. The alkaline lakes in the East African Rift system are home to elegant and graceful flamingos, pink wonders that reels in visitors from around the world and are a vital cog in Kenya's thriving tourism industry. <clears throat> but what what, but it is what lies beneath the valley floor that has literally had a literally seismic impact on Kenya in recent years. Vast geothermal resources that have made a, the country a world leader in clean, clean energy. Peketsa Pek, Mangi uh, is the general manager in charge of geothermal development at Kengen. <laughs> That's a very good word, uh, Kenjen. Nice. The country's energy generating company. We are lucky the African Rift runs through Kenya. Uh, he told me when I visited last week, we just happened to be in the right place with uh, several volcanic centers. Um, Alkaria is one of these centers. Mangi and I are sitting in a gazebo lo- overlooking a small pool that uses brine, the byproduct of the geothermal development process. Uh, visitors from all over Kenya come to enjoy the pool's healing properties. With a power plant humming away nearby, my first visit to the heart of Kenya's geothermal power generation turns out to be a lesson on what's going on below our feet. According to the Geological Society, the Somalian the Nubian tectonic plates pulled away in opposite directions about 25 million years ago, with the surface between the two fault lines sinking and bringing mag- magmatic fluids closer to Earth's surface and creating the famous rift, a vast valley that stretches 6,400 kilometers from Jordan to Mozambique. Under the valley, the water, the water percolates easily and comes into contact with hot rocks found one one to three kilometers beneath the surface, creating a mix of superheated water and steam at 75% and 25% respectively, with temperatures averaging 300 degrees Celsius and pressures of 1,000 PSI. These are, it turns out, the perfect conditions for generating geothermal energy. This is the steam we are tapping into, uh, tapping to run turbines that generate electricity. It is rough down there, and that is where we go, says Mangi. A dangerous but necessary measure. Mangi has observed the behaviour of the valley for 27 years and knows exactly where to drill a well that will yield geothermal power. Kenya has developed the capacity for precision geoscientific studies that help us uh, to identify potential areas to drill. Explorations and drilling are cost-intensive endeavours and investors don't want to go to a greenfield without confirmed viable resources, he says. Geothermal energy had its start in the small settlement of La Dorello, Italy, in 1904. The small plant provided a mere 10 kilowatts of energy, just enough to power five light bulbs. Since then, a number of countries have dug deep in order to exploit similar resources. US, Indonesia, the Philippines, Turkey, and New Zealand are the top five geothermal power producers in the world. In Kenya, the search for underground energy began nearly 70 years ago, but stalled almost immediately. In 56, government drilled two wells specifically to harness geothermal power, a depth of 950 metres and 1,200 metres, respectively. Temperatures averaged 235 degrees Celsius, 
but the wells failed to discharge uh, due to poor permeability as the surrounding area was a bit solid, says Maggie. Then the oil crisis of the early 1970s happened, and once again, Kenya peered beneath the ground for an answer. Global organizations, including United United Nations Development Program, World Bank, and Japan International Corporation Agency. God, that just sounds... Japan International Corporation Agency just just sounds fake. Um, It's all buzzwords. Uh, stepped in to provide financial and technical support for further exploration. In uh, 1971, a well was drilled and discharged. Everybody got excited again, Maggie says. Between 81 uh, and 85, Kenya had installed had an installed capacity of 50, 45 uh, megawatts uh, through uh, the first three power plants in Olkaria. We don't know where the country would be had the oil crisis not hastened this process, Maggie says. Geothermal is available 24-7 for free 65 days. Uh, 365 days, don't know why I said it like that. It is not affected by climate fluctuations since we are using water that is accumulated deep in the ground over, le- over the millenniums. Uh, the alternative would have been the installation of diesel generators that pollute the environment. This is our contribution to a cleaner world. Now here at Okaria, near the flower-growing town of Naivasha, 56 miles from Nairobi, there are close to 300 geothermal wells providing steam that runs turbines in five geothermal power plants operated by Kengen. The power plants and 15 well, well heads have a combined capacity of 799 megawatts. I'm assuming it's megawatts, by the way, it's MW. So, with additional geothermal power generated by independent power producers, Kenya's total geothermal power capacity is 988.7 megawatts, putting the country in sixth, sixth position globally and first in Africa in terms of geothermal power development. As a result, Kenya uh, sources up to 91% of its energy from renewables, 47% percent geothermal, 30 hydro, 20, 12 wind and 2 solar. The country hopes to transition fully to renewables by 2030. I mean to get to 9% that's pretty easy, It'll probably get it in, probably in a couple of years. With Kenjin saying the country has the potential to increase its capacity to as much as 10,000 megawatts of geothermal energy. That would more than match peak demand in Kenya, currently about 2,000 uh, 2,000 megawatts. Peak time consumption uh, in the UK is about 60, 61,000. Shit. God damn. Uh, several wells sit within Hell's Gate National Park. Why is it called Hell's Gate? That's just a horrible name for anything. Uh, national, Especially for a national park. Hey, you want to go to Hell's Gate? No. The location that inspired the movie Lion King. No, there you go. The park is patrolled by antelopes, giraffes, zebras, buffaloes, all roaming freely and oblivious to the immense energy trapped beneath their hooves and delivered to the power plants through a labyrinth of high-pressure piping system averaging 40, 74 miles. How long have I got for this? Okay, a couple of more paragraphs, good. Geothermal power is clean and poses no harm to the wildlife, as animals have uh, adapted to this system, says Gaston Odiambo. Odiambo? Yeah, say that. Uh, a safety officer at the power plants. These, pi- these pipes are delivering steam to the turbines at 180 Celsius to produce 11 kilovolts of... Oh, is that what it's supposed to be? Okay, yeah. Kilovolts of electricity that is then stepped up to 220 kilovolts to travel long distances. You need a sober mind uh, since a single mishap can bring the country to a halt. Oh, that's nice. Odiambo... Odiambo's uh, chartered home in Western Kenya did not have electricity. I grew up in darkness, he tells me, at the plant's control room full of switches, dials, and strobe lights. It's a heavy responsibility to help in generating clean energy that can go for ages. When you understand the process, how your tasks affect the day-to-day running of the economy, you remain humble. Kenyan President William Ruto uh, is now spearheading an African campaign to wean the continent of fossil fuels off fossil fuels. In September last year, a declaration was signed. Uh, uh, which called for reform of, of international finance and castigated excuse me, the global north for the skewed global financial system that makes it difficult for Africa to harness its uh, vast renewable energy sources. Despite Africa having estimated 40% of the world's renewable energy sources, only $60 billion or 2% of $3 trillion renewable energy investments in the last decade have come to Africa, read the declaration. While Kenya and the rest of Africa await financial reforms, it is a fulfilling assignment for the team that works at the geothermal plants in Olkaria. As Maggie sums it up, quote, A good day here is when the whole process works like clockwork. When all scientific studies and financial resources are poured into the ground, a well is drilled and it discharges. 
that is power to the country. You feel investments are well used and such good days are many, unquote. See, that's nice, isn't it? That's nice. That's nice. I, I like I like stories like this because it's worthy. It's worthy of it. Like talking about um well, or about to talk about at the end of the show is something that we shouldn't really be talking about and has really no bearing on anything except just wasting fucking airspace and wasting good conversation, good time having good conversation. This, however, is good time used, good conversation used. But here I am doing it in the second segment and not the last segment to finish off to make people feel good. We still have two more to go. (laughs) And they are concepts that really shouldn't be talked about as much as they are. But here we are. Let's get to them. So we get into our second society segment, and this one is about immigration. Now, we've talked about immigration a few times over the past, obviously, you know, a couple of years here and there. Um, there was one that I keep thinking about and I've never actually bothered to think back to it. Um, oh, it was just so good. Uh, um, I, I shouldn't have started thinking about this now and started vocalizing it now and should have, you know, looked it up beforehand. But um, it was such a good freaking article um, that I just have to, I don't know, try and find it somewhere. Um, but yeah, I, I, it was just such a such a banger. Um, but anyway, this one is a short and sweet one, and um, you know, just an interesting argument to make. Um, it's actually called "In Praise of Mass Immigration." Um, it's written by Gideon Rackman uh, via the Financial Times, and uh, yeah, you know, I've just um, this is a thing that's going to be well, it's going to be a thing for the rest of time. There's always going to be rising well not always but there's going to be a rise in the next you know few decades of immigration immigration is just going to become more of a uh what's the word more of a constant because of well several things to be honest um excuse me the um fucking uh well climate immigration for one (laughs) um that's that's one right there there's uh well the ones uh yeah climate ones wartime you know stuff like you know palestine hello right this is that's gonna be a thing ukraine hello that's gonna that's gonna be a thing climate is going to be a thing for a lot of countries um so yeah you know it's a (coughs) excuse me it's a it's a thing that's going to become more and more prevalent um you know as places in places in certain countries start to flood that's gonna have that's going to have people migrating, maybe not, you know, from country to country, but it's going to be, it's going to be, you know, it's going to, it's going to rise. In every, it's going to rise. I don't know what to tell you. It's going to rise. So might as well embrace it and actually make a fair and good migration system instead of just, you know, doing all this stop the boats bullshit. It's just so, you you're literally just trying to, hold the door back and it's going to explode it's going to explode at some point don't know when it's going to explode but it's going to explode trust me anyway i can't find the article that i was trying i was thinking of um unfortunately but i it's in my head i know it's somewhere but um anyway let's jump right into this one as i look ahead i'm filled with foreboding like the roman i seem to see the river uh, Tiber, Tiber, um, Tiber, I think, foaming with much blood. Enoch Powell's warning about the danger of mass immigration into Britain was made in 1968. Those who regard the late Tory politician as a prophet will be feeling vindicated right now. A backlash against immigration is increasingly central to Western politics. The past weekend saw demonstrations across Germany against the far right alternative for Germany, which is riding high in the polls and is accused of considering the mass deportation of migrants. In the US, Donald Trump has said that illegal migrants are poisoning the blood of the nation. The British government is obsessed by its faltering plan to deport asylum seekers to Rwanda. So perhaps Powell's foreboding is is being borne out more than 50 years after his uh, River of Blood speech. Or perhaps not. There are two major flaws in this idea. The mass immigration was a mistake. 
that is now ripping Western society apart. First, the idea that ethnic homogeneity used to guarantee social peace in the West is obvious nonsense. Second, the social and economic costs of severely curtailing immigration would be enormous. Many of the people who now complain about too many immigrants will be outraged by the cost of having too few. This is not to say that mass immigration does not create tensions and problems. Almost any big social change is bound to do that. Tensions around immigration in Europe often rise sharply after terrorist incidents, such as the attacks in France 2015 that were carried out by Islamist extremists. But the idea that a Western world without migrants would be living in perfect harmony is a historical absurdity. When I grew up in the UK in the 1970s, terrorism was a major threat, but the bombs were being planted by white guys from Northern Ireland. European history before mass immigration is replete with bloodletting and turmoil. England, France, Russia and Spain fought savage civil wars long before the age of mass immigration. So so much for those halcyon days of social peace. Some in the West now cast envious eyes towards countries such as Japan and South Korea, which take much more restrictive attitudes to immigration and are much more ethnically homogenous as a result. But that has not spared them from from political violence. Shinzo Abe, the former Japanese Prime Minister, was assassinated in 2022. The leader of South Korea's main opposition party was stabbed a couple of weeks ago. And all South Koreans live under the shadow of nuclear threat from their ethnic brothers in North Korea. Japan and North Korea, uh, South Korea, sorry, have also have to contend with some of the lowest birth rates in the world. Without immigration to compensate, their populations are shrinking and aging rapidly, which will create enormous economic and social strains. Anti-immigration politicians often say that the answer to low birth rates is more babies, rather than more immigrants. But pro-natalist policies have a very poor record of its of success. Opponents of mass immigration say that it too, uh, too imposes heavy economic and social costs. Matthew Goodwin, a British academic and anti-immigration activist, argues, quote, close to half of all social housing in London goes to households that are headed by somebody who was not born in Britain. I don't think that's a sustainable situation, unquote. But this is hardly surprising, since 41% of Londoners were born overseas. If you include people like me, whose parents were born overseas, the number of Londoners with a migration background, as the Germans call it, is far higher. And yet, London is easily the most prosperous and dynamic city in Britain. It is doing so much better than the rest of the country, that levelling up the rest of the UK to match London's living standards and productivity has become a central goal of the British government. London schools, packed with new migrants, are also outperforming those in the rest of the country. Could it be that high levels of immigration are actually part of London's success story? (gasps) Really? Can't believe it. Take the migrants out of London, and the city will stop functioning. The other day, I had my my hair cut by a Syrian barber, then travelled to a doctor's appointment in an Uber driven by a Nigerian. At the hospital, I had a scan carried out by two Spaniards, before going in to see my Delhi-trained specialist. Britain's much-prized NHS would in fact collapse without the contribution of immigrants. Some 35% of doctors working in the NHS are overseas nationals. If you count those who arrived from abroad and have taken UK citizenship, the figure would be much higher. Just as there are said to be no atheists in a foxhole, I doubt there are many racists in intensive care. Of course, debating levels of immigration is completely legitimate in a democracy. Legal border crossings also pose a particular problem because they suggest the rule of law is breaking down. But in both the UK and the US, the great majority of immigrants have arrived legally. Right-wingers often say that politicians should dare to tell the truth about immigration. I agree. The truth is that high levels of immigration are a sign of dynamic and healthy society, not a harbinger of doom or quote-unquote rivers of blood. I really like that um, whole just idea because that's that, that's that's a really succinct way of just talking about it because I I'm I'm so irritated so irritated by this whole just shit just going on everywhere where it's just like stop the boats immigration 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 and you know I know what it is right it's it's a it's a it's a conservative party um, investing in the fact of moral panic, 
they're investing in moral panic. They constantly just see some. They constantly have nothing else going on. Economically, have nothing else going on. They actually have no dubs to produce. So instead, they you know try and make shit up. They they do this Rwanda shit and spend hundreds of millions um, of taxpayer money to get this done. And I'm just checking my watch. Nobody has actually gone yet. In fact, in fact. There's actually been news uh, reports about um, Rwandan people coming through here on asylum, um, or whatever it's called, or just general migration, right? So, so Rwandans are leaving Rwanda to come to the UK, and we're trying to have migrants go to Rwanda, even though we've accepted migrants from Rwanda in recent years. Can you see the bad faith here? <laughs> it's silly. The whole thing's silly. Immigration is silly. Uh, it's not well, not silly. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a toxified conversation. It's a conversation worth having. Do not get me wrong. Of course, right? Of course, it, uh, you know, illegal immigration is not good because it's illegal, right? But you know, Windrush generation, Africans, um. Greeks, uh, <laughs> Turkish, Kurdish, um, you know, just, I'm trying to think, Indian, there you go, fucking South Asian, right, <laughs> what are we talking about here, what are we talking about here, what are we really talking about here, when we talk about immigration, what are we really talking about here, we're talking about a sect of this country um, that are <clears throat> not melanated, um, having a panic, Seeing seeing a couple more brown faces than they usually do over the years. Over time, they just see more and more. And I've noticed it. Even me, as a mixed-race person, I've noticed it. Even in my ends, right? Where I I, I went to a school. Um, I went to an all-girls school, uh, local, right? And I was just gobsmacked. I was just gobsmacked to the amount of black girls that were there. And I was just like, Fuck. Like, that's crazy. It's crazy to think about. You know what I mean? I, I haven't been, obviously, you know, high school's, you know, long gone for me. It's over a decade now. And back then, I was, like, maybe one of four or five people of colour. Right? And that was it. D- boys and girls in a comprehensive high school slash academy. That, that was it. That was, the, that was the demographic. Everyone else was some form of white. Um, so, you know, it's just, it's just, it's interesting, it's interesting how, you know, demographics change, and how they change locally, especially, um, but, to say that this is a, if if this is, um, you know, Enoch Powell being correct is bullshit, is bullshit, the Windrush generation has done a lot, black Africans have done a lot, South Asians have done a lot to improve this country for what it is, to prove in 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 spite of all this shit we constantly get thrown thrown at thrown at us. It's it's constant, constant shit thrown. Um whether it be, you know, age age based or race based or class based, it's always being thrown at us. Um and and it's toxic. It is toxic. And again, immigration is a fine conversation to have illegal immigration is definitely a fine conversation to have but to constantly see people that are so desperate to get here and they and the majority of them have links in the uk that's that's why they come to the uk guys that's why breaking news they come here because they know people here they have people here that's it so, you know, it's not a matter of just some fucker coming in on a boat and he's just vibing, going like, yeah, let's go UK. They have a reason, guys. We are not... There's <laughs> obviously links to, you know, just British exceptionalism where... The, where um, Shout out to Ryan, he, t- he showed me, like, an article uh, title one day and it was something like uh, Women in Hertfordshire. Uh, I don't know, it was like something, something along the lines of, like, Hamas is coming to... Uh, bomb Hertfordshire and it's just like you really think you really think the world cares about you that much the world does not care about us that much as a country it really not anymore we are really a butler state at this point and that's all it is that's all this country is all right it's a butler state it's a it's a butler state for Russian oligarchs it's a 
bitch made state for the US to go oh wait, oh wait, do this do this thing with me yes 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 that's what that's what we do that's that's all the UK is is one of those two right is either assisting rich people um, or just dick riding the US that's that's all we do these days that's all it is we ain't in Europe anymore so we can't even have any power in that front we're on our own on that one and um, that's where we're at. So to 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 consider that you know we're so fucking special and we're so exceptional that you know you know that the Hamas wants to come for us or you know illegal immigrants are just coming for to us just because we're such a great fucking country is fucking ludicrous. It's fucking ludicrous, guys. We are here. They they come through to here because most of the time they know somebody here. And that's all it is. That's all it is. If they knew someone in France, they'd fucking go France. If they knew someone in Spain, they'd fucking go Spain. If they knew someone in Germany, they'd go Germany. That's all it is, guys. That's all it is. So, while this small immigration is obviously always a worthy conversation to have in a democracy, in a democratic conversation, the way we are going about it in this, um, you know, ham-fisted... Obviously, Rwanda's just the stupidest idea ever, but even just the concept of stopping boats and having such, such vitriol, such venom, such vim for these people trying to succeed in a better life is jarring to me. And buckle up, guys. It's going to happen more. Like I said, environmental wartime immigration is going to keep coming. It's going to keep coming. So, yeah. Buckle up. I don't know what else to tell you. Buckle the fuck up. Alright. So. Rant time. Let's get it sorted. Let's get it started. Because. Fuck. I hate this one so much. I hate this story. I hate this. I I really do hate this story. It's just um, it's just one of those things where, I even saw today some um, I forgot the prick's name from uh The Apprentice, but it's it's one dickhead who used to be in The Apprentice, and um, he's around my age, and he's talking about like how you know eighteen, twenty-one year olds should be conscripted. And this is the conversation, the new the new moral panic, um, and the new reason to shit on the youth. Um, this is the new one for the week, and um, it'll probably be dead in a couple of weeks, because of course it does, the new cycle changes. Um, but I just find this whole conversation incredibly stupid, um, and the... <laughs> And the and the lack of diversity in this conversation has been outstanding. I'm going to use here just a jump off point, just for more about details and anything, so you guys actually know what the what we're talking about here. Um, but yeah, this is a this is a this is a stupid one. Do not get it twisted. This is a very very stupid conversation um, to to have. But we're here, so let's get into it. This is uh, via Sky News. Uh, let me get it up right quick. Alright, it's called It's called Time to Think the Unthinkable and Consider UK Conscription, says Britain's former top NATO commander. It's written by Sunita Patel Carstairs. So let's jump right in. Hopefully we'll get some details on here. And then I'm gonna rant because Yeah. General Sir Richard Sheriff, an ex deputy uh, Supreme Allied Commander of the military organization. The military organisation, what does that mean? Warned um, that the UK defence budget is not big enough to expand armed forces alone. He told Sky News, quote, conscription to most professional soldiers, I, and I count myself as one, is absolute anathema. Britain's armed forces have traditionally and culturally relied on long service volunteer, highly professional soldiers uh, with huge experience, and that is really the way we would all want it to go on. Quote, un- uh, unquote. However, given the current global situation, defense uh, fun- defense funding cut since the end of the Cold War, he said. Oh, sorry, I just want to stop there. <laughs> d- 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 oh no! Oh no! Not y- not defense spending. UK defense uh, defense 
budget, defense GDP. Let me let me let me get the GDP on that one. Let me get the GDP because this is this is gonna make me laugh uh, if I if I if I'm correct. Because get it, get, understand it or not, guys. Oh, here we go. Right here we go. Right so. This is I'm hearing on macro trends just for just randomly just wanted to oh it's risen obviously okay so it's risen in billions of US dollars um, but is fallen in terms of GDP it is now two point two percent of GDP where in 1960 it was uh, well 1961 six point nine two seven seven point zero nine percent in 1960 of GDP okay that's fine. So GDP has gone lower, but it's still a fuck ton. Like this, sixty-eight point three seven billion, <laughs> a twelve point six eight percent increase from twenty twenty. Okay, that's officially. Um, so yeah, so it's gone up in one ways, gone down in other ways. But to be honest, let's be real, doesn't need to be that large anyway. Um, however. Given the current global situation, defense can be concerned. Quote, uh, he said, I think we need to get over many of the cultural hang-ups and assumptions and frankly think the unthinkable. I think we need to go further and look carefully at conscription, he said. His intervention follows comments from the Chief General Staff, General Sir Patrick Sanders, who suggested British men and women could face a call-up to the army in event of a war with Russia. The head of the British Army said UK citizens should be trained and equipped to fight in a potential war between NATO and Vladimir Putin's forces. So Richard uh, said on Tuesday, that e- uh, Thursday, sorry, that even if Russia was defeated in the war against Ukraine, it is going to remain determined to rebuild another Russian empire, determined to subjugate Ukraine, and once it's done that, determined to move on to other countries in the former Soviet space, which includes the Baltic states, all members of NATO. Quote, uh, so there is a real threat to peace in the Euro-Atlantic region. And the way to preserve peace is deterrence, effective military deterrence, conventional and nuclear, he said. That means being ready for the worst case, which is war with Russia. So that means our armed forces have got to have the numbers, the capabilities, the logistics, the training needed. He said the current UK numbers are in free fall, standing around 74,000 with forecasts going even lower. It is not an army that is ready and capable of producing a war fighting division, which I would argue is the currency of high intensity conflict, he said. To get the volunteers needed, it would require a huge amount of effort and money, which he said wasn't there. So I think General Sanders is absolutely right to be talking about Citizens Volunteer Army, he said. I think now, against all the uh, all the odds, though, it is the is the time to start talking, thinking the unthinkable, and really having to think quite carefully about conscription if you are to deliver numbers needed. Oh god, here we go. Now we're going to mention Finland. Here we go, because Finland does it. Now we can do it by Finland. Um, which uh, shout out to King Jens who did do this. He did um, go to Finland and uh, con- and uh, do his uh, training um, after he turned eighteen. Um, if you want to get on that interview, that is. Um, I've got to find the episode quickly for you. Um, it's a very good interview. We had to do it twice, but um, it was very good regardless because he managed to say what he wanted to say and uh, was much more concise with it. Um, so yeah, King Yens is episode one. Uh, no, episode eighty-five, um, and also episode one ninety. If you want to get into his uh, interview number two, um, but yes, I have two eighty-five and one ninety, which is very close to being just. Uh, well, not close, but anyway. No, yeah, it's close, yeah. Nearly, nearly, nearly close to being double, but yeah. Anyway, 85, 190 if you want to get into those. Um, so yeah, where was I? Asked by Sky's K. Burley when military training uh, would need to start in that hypothetical scenario. He did not say when, but did point to Finland as a country to look at as a starting point. Quotes, if you're going to think about conscription, you need to look widely. And look at other countries like Finland, a country with a very, very small professional army of about 20,000, but which can... It but which can expand its forces to about 280,000 through mobilizations, he said. And the way they do it is a universal male conscription starting at 18. Women are encouraged to volunteer, he said. Soldiers who go no further than private will do six months conscription, specialists nine months, officers do 11. Uh, they have a reserve commitment up to, up until the age of about 50, 60 for officers, uh, where they are required to go back and do a number of training days every year, so they are ready and able to expand those forces, he said. 
Major General Charlie Herbert, a military analyst who has served as a senior NATO advisor, said Sir Patrick was trying to quote-unquote provoke a debate nationally and within government about the size of the army and the defence budget, but also highlighting some of the threats the UK faces now, particularly the emerging threats from Russia. Quote, we are seeing the possibility of major conflict in Europe once again, he told Sky News. He said uh, the size of the British Army has halved in the last 30 years and suggested Sir Patrick was warning it may need to expand quickly in an emergency. I think what Sir Patrick and others, others are saying is spend now, invest properly in a capable military in order to deter those threats so that we don't face them in five or ten years' time. He added, if we fail to invest now, we may well pay, we may well pay the consequences. There's a 1939 feel to the world right now, senior Tory MP Tobias Elwood said on Sky, told Sky News on Wednesday, warning conscription was a possibility. What a fucking term to say. There's a 1939 feel to the world right now. That's so fucking loaded. Anyway, he said UK has been too complacent <laughs> and needed to heed Sir Patrick's warning. All right. Whilst coming over the horizon should, uh, should shock us, it should worry us. We are not prepared, he said. How long have we got for this? All right, cool. A couple more paragraphs. Uh, we've had a couple of decades, three decades or so since Cold War. Life has gone well. It's now uh, going to get more difficult as authoritarian states exploit our timidity, our reluctance to really put fires up. He added, Patrick Saunders is saying, prepare for what's coming over the horizon. There is a 1939 feeling to the world right now. These authoritarian states are rearming. There's a risk of uh, averseness to, about the West in wanting to deal with that. And global institutions such as the United Nations aren't able to hold these errant nations to account. In fact, the UN is reaching its League of Nations moment unless it is reformed. So that's where the world is heading. We need to wake up to that. There is a mindset now of this era of insecurity that we are heading towards. But we are still on a peacetime defence budget of just 2%. That does need to change. Defence Secretary Grant Shapps in a speech said in a speech last week said the world is moving from a post-war to a pre-war world and the UK must ensure its entire defence ecosystem is ready to defend its homeland. Downing Street has ruled out any move towards conscription model saying that army service would remain voluntary. Okay, good. Got that all out of the way. Um, I can't help but f- again think there's a bad faith element into this. I'm currently just wondering, and I don't know why, I don't know why this conversation has suddenly popped up. Um, maybe some legitimate intel has come through in the ranks and, you know, and they're actually, you know, responding to that. But not the whole, tr- the whole truth isn't being told here, I feel. Um, and, um, you know, I feel, obviously this, convers- this conversation has gone, while that one was, you know, just a, nice roundup of just uh opinions of uh well not opinions but of um comments have been thrown about towards it from official quote unquote official channels a lot of the conversation i've been seeing has been about um just the uh, uh the concept of young people these days and how you know gen z are not built like you know the greatest generation they're not built like them they're pussies woke snowflakes yeah it's just it's just so fucking, again, a waste of time, waste of space, waste of TV time, waste of di- dialogue, waste of debate. It's all such a fucking waste. Now, would I conscri- would I accept conscription? No. <laughs> no. I'm not trying to go to fucking war. I don't know Russia's. I don't know Russia. I don't know Russia like that, okay? I, it ain't gonna happen for me. Ain't gonna happen for me. I ain't built like that. I'll, I'm fine. I'm fine to admit that. I ain't built like that. Okay. To and to say the defense budget needs to rise and all of this stuff, right? Is is not accounting for the fact that the world and the UK especially um, is so fucked in so many places. I think I saw an, uh, I think I saw a headline where you know the military will have to quote unquote get in line for you know resources and they do get the fucking line how about you sort cost of living how about you sort out homelessness how about you sort out the police how about you sort out your own fucking government how about that how about we do all that how about you guys go first see this is this is the world we're in the world we are in is extremely different from 1939 okay Back then, and I'm, I'm I'm taking this with a grain of salt, so 
please, I'm saying this with a grain of salt, so don't take it, it's too, too hard, right, but I'm assuming that people in 1939, and, you know, pre-war, took government at its word, you know, they, they took government at its word, they, um, they accepted what they were given in terms of that, and if, you know, if, if, if the government says jump, the people say how high, we have too much knowledge now, way too much, way too much knowledge now, we know how much this government, politicians in general, we know how much politicians in general lie to us, we know how much in general the government lies to us, we know how all of these people in power are connected to private entities, pretty officially by the way, paying for talks, um, endorsing literal money being handed, put in their pockets to these politicians from private entities. Whether it funny bit funny enough, be you know the likes of Boeing um, and uh, uh, BAE Systems and shit like that. You know, I mean, warmongers, private military warmongers, basically making weapons, selling them right to the highest bidder, right? These people in those people's pockets. They're in those entities' pockets. So you're telling me that if conscription becomes a thing, you want me to come through? No. No. I know too much. I know way too much. Ain't gonna fucking happen. Ain't gonna fucking happen. A, I'm not built like that, and that's just me being honest. And maybe if it ca- if push came to shove, then obviously it would have to happen. Whatever, right? I'll accept how the life goes. Like, I mean, the thing I've accepted over the past couple of weeks is that my life is not going as I want it to be. That's fine, okay? Everyone's gonna, if if that would happen, and I'm, and you know, judging by films like, you know, 16, uh, 16, 19, huh? 19, 19. Um, is it 19, I forgot the fucking name of the film. The, the Sam Mendes film, right? It's 1919, right? Um, 1916? What the fuck was that film? Is it a film? 1916? 1917. Fuck you know. <laughs> Can you remember the fucking year? 1917. <laughs> there you go. You know, in that one, um, which is a great film by the way, I really enjoyed that film. Um you know, there was a there was a level of there was an element of existential crisis happening as it as it was happening. You know, you have the main character, I forgot dude's name, but you know, he was kind of just having existential crisis, and then you know having to just like shut all that off and actually you know start running, and then having another existential crisis. Right, that's kind of all it is. Right, and obviously PTSD. You know, you know the story. Right. <sighs> you know that's that's fine. That will happen if it happens. It happens. Right. But, but. But, if you play with this as if we don't know that your shit stink, if you piss on us and tell us it's raining, people ain't going to say no, people ain't going to say yes to this, just know that, people ain't going to say yes to this, I ain't going to say yes to this, majority of my age group won't won't say yes to this, people younger than me won't say yes to this, people older than me probably won't say yes to this. We are, we are we are different now. We are different now as a country. We are not blind. We are knowledgeable. We are given information. We know that you lie to us. So why in fucking hell would we fight for anything that you consider um, patriotic? I ain't patriotic these days. I'm really not. I love my people, um, and I won't, <laughs> I won't, I won't explain any further as to who my people are. Take, you know, assume, okay. Use your imagination as to who I mean, my people. I love my people. That's it. I don't love these politicians. I don't love these private companies. I don't love none of this. I don't love capitalism. I don't love neoliberalism. I don't love any of that. That can all go to the fucking bin. Okay, and when I can, when I see something like war, which we are doing literally as we speak, bombing the fuck out of Yemen because they're affecting the money. Don't get it twisted; they're affecting the money. That's why they're doing it. 
Because the Houthis are fucking with the money. Okay? Don't get that twisted. Okay? So, when you're telling me that you're bombing Yemen after eight years of Saudi Arabia bombing Yemen with British weapons, you're telling me that we're doing this in the greater good concept of how World War One and Two went. In that in that in that patriotic sheen that World War Two and World War One had. You're fucking joking me. You are having a tin bath, geese. Alright? Ain't gonna happen. We there's a lot of people that has the same thoughts as me. Trust me on that. And if they don't, they'll still say no. Because this country is just such in such bad shape. Such bad shape. I talk about it pretty much every week. It's in such bad shape in so many ways. You think that defence or putting us in military or even having a war is going to improve anything? This whole thing sounds like a non-star. That's it. So, ladies and gentlemen. Which I'll leave it there for the Fifth End Podcast Network. I've been Charlie Taylor and it's been most good. Intro music was Too Much by Vanilla. Thanks to Chop Music for Bid to use Trank. Find both the links in the full show notes as well as Friend of 5e Nappy Hyatt. Charismatic Interlude. You can always find his link in the full show. And with that said, I hope you have a good week. You should always try and do the same. But until next time, take it easy, ladies and gentlemen.